Casey. And I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder, a true crime podcast with an element of baking. What is the bake this week? So we are talking about a Dr. Cream, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I don't know why I find that name amusing. I'm sorry if your last name is Cream. But anyway, of course, I have to make a cream pie. Absolutely. And then you said this happened, this was a Victorian doctor? Yes. 1880. So 1980s. No, Wait, 1980s. 1980s. <laughs> I was like, that's not Victorian. <laughs> 1880s. That makes more sense. Oh, gosh. That's okay. Didn't we do that to your mom the other day? Yeah, we did. Sorry, mom. She didn't even say anything about that, though. <laughs> it's only a hundred year difference, you know. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, unfortunately, there isn't a such thing as a Victorian cream pie. But there is a Bavarian cream pie. Mm. So I don't really know what makes it Bavarian. Actually, I'm pretty ignorant. I don't even know what Bavarian means or is. It's a type of cream, isn't it? The Bavarian in the name. Oh, wait. Oh, this article actually says it. The Bavarian in the name comes from the cream, which is thickened with the gelatin. Okay, well. Learned that from the Great British Baking Shows. (laughs) So... (laughs) I feel like you're actually more educated to do this. <laughs> Not um, really, because I can't be. <laughs> so anyway, um, I have not made this yet, but it looks like it's going to be kind of a juggling act. Um, it seems like one of those things where um, when you're baking, you have to continuously be mixing. I mean, I guess I could use a mixer, so. But it needs to be constantly stirring as you're adding the... Um, uh, sugar, cornstarch, eggs, milk, and the softened gelatin all in. It needs to be constantly mixing. Um, and then you add that all into a pan of hot water and then you cook it until it, that custard then thickens. And then you add it into your pre-made, well, the pie crust that you should have already made. And then you decorate it with the whipped cream. So it's going to, it would end up pretty fancy. It actually does nice. not sound as hard as I originally thought. So I think that it's very doable for me and the listeners. But uh, as always, I will attempt to post a, <laughs> a meal picture. I say as always, as if we've been doing that. <laughs> Literally. But I will attempt to post either my fail or my um, me succeeding. I cannot talk today. Goodness. <laughs> Anyway, so let's get started. Victorian Dr. Cream, let's go. 1880s. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm kind of telling this a little out of order, but I promise it'll make sense. So I'm going to start this kind of in the middle. And in part two, we're going to go back to some previous stuff that he did. Um. Oh, so It'll make sense a, in the a end. Two-parter. Yes, this is a two-parter. So this is part one. Nice. So here we go. This is gonna, our story is gonna start in Joliet, Illinois, which isn't too <gasps> far from us. What? Yeah. Joliet. So uh, 
July 31st, 1891, Thomas Neal Cream is being released from prison after nine years and 273 days locked up. He started his sentence in 1881, and we're not going to find out what he went to prison for until part two. So... Huzzah, but I promise this will still be fun. Well, <laughs> I shouldn't say fun, but um, All so right. a doozy. He was a doctor who was from Canada, but he earned his license at a prestigious medical college in England. And he went to so after he was released from prison in Illinois, he went to Quebec City where his family was currently living. Uh, His father was William Cream, and he was a very wealthy businessman in the timber industry, and they had a fortune. Um, So he comes from a very pretty famous family, very wealthy family. Um, He was going to stay with his brother, Daniel, and his brother's wife, Jesse, after his stay, but it's they everyone in their family kind of was like not really wanting him to stay with them kind of didn't want to be associated with someone who had just come out of prison um and he would change his behavior quite often like he was manic one moment and then really quiet and sullen the next so they suspected he had something like ptsd from his years in jail and His family decided it would be best to send him abroad for a fresh start, like a clean slate, a change of scenery. Um, So they sent him to London, where he had studied in the 1870s at St. Thomas's Hospital. So he's been there before. They were like, he's lived there before. Let's just send him over to London. What an interesting thing to do. Like, you know, this guy's clearly struggling. Let's get him away from everyone he knows. And just, like, put him on the other side of the world. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting take, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. So he arrives in London, England on October 17th, 1891. Um, He finds lodgings, I love saying that, at 103 Lambeth Palace Road, um, which is just across... Um, from St. Thomas's Hospital, where he had been a student. Um, okay. And now he's working, right? Yes. And Lambeth was a slum town that's across the Thames River from Parliament. And he had lived there before. So again, he knows the area. But Lambeth at the time was like rivaling Whitechapel as one of the poorest, dirtiest, and most crime ridden neighborhoods of London. Um, so not the prettiest place, but he really liked it there. Hmm. We'll find (laughs) out why. (laughs) Um, so he became a regular at Gaddy's Adelaide restaurant, I think is what it's called. Um, but the patrons there didn't really like him that much because apparently he talked about women a lot. And one man said, quote, his language about them, women, was far from tolerable or agreeable. Oh. So he's kind of getting a reputation of talking like 
nasty. And he oh. also liked to carry around with him pornographic photos, which he just openly showed to people like wherever he went. Okay. I mean, like he was just in prison for nine years. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that like it's ever appropriate. But, like, maybe, like, the people he was around in prison, you know, that's, like, more acceptable. And so that kind of became the new normal. Right. Yeah, you can see that. Um, People also didn't like him because he had a strange look because his left eye turned inward. So he kind of had crazy eyes. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Cream here. <laughs> oh my god, that's terrible. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, he was diagnosed with farsightedness, and his eyes focused improperly, which blurred his vision and gave him severe headaches. So he had a pair of glasses to correct his vision, but his eye was still a little weird sometimes. A little cattywampus. Yeah. And he was also an addict. He was seen constantly taking pills with cocaine or morphine and strychnine, I think is what it's called. Strychnine. Um, I don't recognize it. No, well, I've never heard of before cases. either. So. Um, <laughs> getting narcotics was pretty easy for him because he was telling everyone he was a doctor from America. And... He even had proof because he actually was a doctor who, you know, but he hadn't been practicing for nine years, obviously. So on October 13th, 1891 in London, um, a woman named Ellen Donworth was outside her home on Waterloo Road and she let a man into her home and then she came back outside and James Stiles came out of a pub and saw her fall forward onto the ground on the street. So he ran over to help her and walked her to her room. And she continued to have like these violent spasms. And her landlady, Annie Clemens, tried to help her. And Stiles said at times she was personally perfectly sensible and at other times it took three of them to hold her down as she was like shaking really badly and like violently like lurching and writhing around um and ellen said a tall dark cross-eyed man gave me something to drink and the bottle had some white stuff in it um yeah so she was taken to saint thomas's hospital but by the time the carriage arrived there. She had already died. She had already died. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So, do they think that it was a drug overdose? Um. Well, I mean, probably. Yes, that was like a possibility. But they thought, um, they so. What am I saying? Okay, so Ellen was nineteen at the time when she died. Um. She had been pregnant at 16, but her baby had died. Um, She lived with the baby's father, but they were both unemployed, which was why she took up prostitution, which that's what she was doing that night. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Um, 
And so Dr. Kellogg, he looked at the contents of her stomach, um, to try and figure out like what happened and confirmed she had been poisoned. And he found strychnine and morphine in her stomach. Um, wow. Yeah. And Annie Clemens and Ellen had received two letters from the cross-eyed man, as they were just calling him. And the letters had arranged to meet her the night that she died. And the handwriting was very neat. And then the coroner, who did the autopsy, also received a very strange letter that said, I am writing to say that if you and your satellites, I don't know what that means, fail to bring the murderer of Ellen Donworth to justice, I am willing to give you such assistance as will bring the murderer to justice, provided your government is willing to pay me $300,000 for my services. Signed, A. O'Brien, detective. Very, very strange. Okay. Out of all of that, you know what the strangest part of it is? What? The fact that the letter was written by the doctor mm-hmm. and it was neat handwriting. Because every doctor yeah. I know yeah. writes in t- chicken scratch. Like, terribly. Yeah. I think it's like yeah. a rule. In order to be a doctor, you have to have horrible handwriting. Non-legible. <laughs> yeah. So no, that's the strangest that's part of that. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But still. Must not be a doctor. His handwriting's too good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so so he must be delusional. $300,000 in the 18, what, what, is it like 1890 at this point? Yeah. It was like tens of millions of dollars. Yes. I mean, it's way too much money to like, yeah. <laughs> it's just stupid. Yeah. So unfortunately, they just decided that that letter to the coroner was just a prank and they ignored it until much, much later. Um, and there was an inquest into Ellen's death of like how she was poisoned because um, they had determined she definitely was, but there was no evidence to show how. So Scotland Yard determined it was a suicide that she must have killed herself by consuming these drugs. Wow. That's yeah. presumptuous. And I would say so as well. Um, a man a little later named William Slater was charged with murdering Ellen after he was caught trying to slip a white drug into another woman's drink. Um, but that investigation fell apart very quickly. Like it obviously it was not him. He was not connected to Ellen like at all. It was just some guy. So plus they had already ruled it as a suicide. So it's just like, oh, it's it's a suicide for now unless we find people that could have done it. And then, right. yeah. and then it's a murder. Otherwise, it's a suicide. Exactly. That's, That's kind of how it was. It's not that great. No. Um, so a, maybe like a week later uh, in London, October 21st, 1891, uh, Lucy Rose, who was a live-in maid, heard screaming above her flat, which is what they call an apartment. Um. And she and her landlady, Emma Phillips, went to go check it out. And they saw Matilda Clover lying on her bed 
screaming, spasming, and like writhing all over the place, just like um, Ellen had been. And Matilda said to them, that man, Fred, has poisoned me. He gave me some pills to prevent me catching the disease, which would have, the disease is like an STD because she was also a prostitute. Um, and then this is really sad. She had a two-year-old son and she was begging them to go get her baby because she thought she was going to die. She wanted to see him. And Emma left to go get a doctor, but had a hard time finding one that was available. And finally, a doctor's assistant agreed to come, but she had been sick and like really in pain for three hours at that point. Um, And the assistant examined her and said, I concluded that she's suffering from epileptic fits and convulsions due to alcohol poisoning. So he left to go get her medicine. Like, didn't take her to a hospital. He was like, she's going to die anyway, but I'll try and go get some painkillers or something and left. And her convulsions continued for two more hours and then she died. Um, that is a horrible way to go. Oh my yeah. gosh. It's a really long time to be in excruciating pain. It, and then to just say like, oh yeah, nothing I can do. Bye. Yeah. Um, That's so sad. Yeah. And then an actual doctor, because he was a doctor's assistant, um, mm-hmm. but Dr. Graham arrived later to do an autopsy and also confirmed, oh, yeah, it was alcohol poisoning because Dr. Graham had been treating Matilda for alcoholism for a while. So um, Lucy, the maid, told the doctor about Matilda saying there was a man who gave her pills, but they didn't believe her. Great work, all you know. Love to see it. Like, and oh my gosh, it's so stupid. Yeah. So he's the doctor. Also said, I believe she had heart failure due to withdrawals, but she had been heavily drinking that night. That night, so she couldn't have been going through withdrawal. No, no, you wouldn't have. No. Um. I mean, you can actually, it's nuts. You can actually die from alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. Like that's a, a lot of people come to the hospital with alcohol withdrawal. And honestly, a lot of times that's how you have to do it. Like if, if someone's an alcoholic and it's time to call it quits, it is super unsafe to call like to quit just cold Turkey. Uh-huh. Um, you can actually die from that, which is like, there's, cause it's um a benzo benzodiazepine so it like is a depressant and causes you to like then you're like really sweaty you're shaking withdrawal you start hallucinating you're just like it's it goes you go crazy like it's crazy it is so crazy and alcohol is the worst one that i've seen Mm -hmm. it's just so weird how your body is so it can become so accustomed without you realizing it Mm-hmm. That it has that violent of a reaction if it doesn't get it. Like that's that's yeah crazy. And and you're right. Like um, it well she was already dr- like she might have been an alcoholic, sure. But like if she was already drinking, then obviously she's not withdrawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, make any sense? No. 
Now, Lucy also said that a man who looked about 40-ish, who was tall and had a mustache and wore a top hat and a cape, um, came into Matilda's apartment right before she died. And Matilda had told her that this Fred, as he was saying, was his name, had bought her expensive boots and offered to pay her two and a half pounds a week to keep her off the streets. So that is a generous like amount of money. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it was um, to be getting each week for just, I don't know, you know, so for just being like his, his woman or whatever off the streets, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Wait, you cut out. What'd you say? I said like basically to be like his woman or whatever, whatever, however you want to call it. Right. Exactly. So two other prostitutes whose names were Elizabeth May and Elizabeth Masters lived around the corner. And a few days before Matilda's death, they had met a man who had a peculiar look in his eyes and a strange squint that they said. So Dr. Cream had sent Elizabeth Masters a letter to arrange a meeting between the two of them. Um, and since Elizabeth May was her friend, she was like, you know, I'll sit and wait for him to come get you together so that we can like, I can see who he is too. So like they were, you know, taking care of each other. And so they sat by the window of their apartment waiting for him, but they saw him walking on the street with Matilda Clover. And they were like, oh, I guess he's going to blow me off. So they followed the two of them Mm -hmm. to... Lambeth Road and saw them go up into her apartment together. So they are basically two witnesses to seeing this man as well go into the apartment with Matilda. And then a few hours later, she was dead. But unfortunately, she was buried on October 27th with no leads and no thoughts of it being a homicide, really, because she was an alcoholic. Right obviously it was alcohol poisoning so this is crazy yeah it's you know he's going after this group specifically Mm -hmm. I mean it's so sad how many stories and how many serial killers get away from with it for so long because they're killing prostitutes yeah it's so sad this happens so often Mm -hmm. I mean this was literally just our last story too yeah and a lot of people don't ask questions because they're already living a risky lifestyle. So they just kind of assume that it's like kind of a part of the job, which it's not. Right. No, but it, it definitely is something. Yeah. You see over and over again. And honestly, it still kind of happens like this isn't a forgotten and dead thing. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Isn't there um, a crazy fact out there that, like, there's still how many serial killers right out in America right now? Yeah, like, the Let FBI thinks in America there's, like, 50-something, like, 53 serial killers just walking around right now, which is not a fantastic, what is it, statistic, I couldn't say the word. The number of serial killers that are still not caught among the U.S., among the USA varies from 25 to 50. Ugh. That's too many. According to the FBI. That is 
that's terrifying. That's scary. I mean, I think we've talked about this before. And okay, compared to the population of the USA, I mean, I guess that's probably like 0.01 per, 0.001% or something like a yeah. super, super small number. But, but still, also, if you think of it, like if it's like 50 something, that's like what one per state. That's true. You know? But uh, it's still a lot. That. That's, still, that's yeah, that's still too many. Yeah. That's that's true. That's scary. Don't trust me. Okay, but like by serial killer, what do they mean? Because I mean serial killer is more than more than one. Two or more deaths. Two more, two or more. So I don't know. Maybe not as many that are unhinged as unhinged as these yeah. stories that we hear. Like maybe not like like tens of victims but like right still fits the category yeah still murder right (laughs) yeah anyway so in late october um in london still louisa harvey waited she was um another prostitute and she was waiting at saint james hall on Regent Street for a man she had arranged to meet up with. Um, She had met him a few times before, and he said he was a doctor at St. Thomas's Hospital. And one morning, she had arranged to meet Dr. Cream, and go. they were going to go to a hotel, and um, he handed her three pounds and said hey we're gonna meet later tonight and i'll take you to go see a show like a stage show you know Mm -hmm. and when they met later he told her she had some spots on her forehead and he would bring some pills for her to take that would take away those spots and make her prettier um so he gave her two oblong light colored pills and he told her to swallow them And he wanted to, like, watch her do it, like, right then and there. Mm -hmm. Um, But she pretended to do it. Like, she lifted her hand to her mouth, but, like, switched the pills into her other hand. And when he wasn't looking, she, like, tossed them over the bridge. So she didn't actually take them. Um, And right after he thought she had taken the pills, he was like, oh, actually, I just got a call from the hospital. So I can't go see the show with you. And I'll see you later. And left. So. Louisa thought that was really strange. So she asked her friend Charles to go with her to their meeting later because they were still supposed to meet up, but he never showed up. So obviously, you know, he didn't expect her to be there. That's why he didn't show up. You know, that's what it seems like to me. What is the point? He doesn't even see the results of what he's doing. I just don't understand this dude. It's a really strange, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's a really strange method because a lot of killers, like, they want to, they want the satisfaction and to see it happen. But he, yeah, like, in every instance, he gives them the pills but leaves. And I guess it's enough for him to know they're, they're definitely going to do what I want. And they're just, it's just good enough for him to know that they're dead. Or dying. I don't know. It's super weird. 
it's almost just kind of like him specifically seeking out these people just to like kill him and like it, it's not like he gets some sort of like well at least what it seems like i don't know this guy too well yet but like mm-hmm. um it's more so just like killing it's not like he gets some sort of satisfaction out of it it's more so like he feels like he's doing some kind of kind of duty exactly like he doesn't have to see it it's just he wants he it's like a hatred of like yes women yeah. prostitutes just right doesn't care how the, they're just that they're gone exactly yeah. he just has a job to be done like he, like it's more careless than being like a need and like a desire to do it it's mm-hmm. more like just being careless right exactly um Change. and speaking of being careless uh he also decided another way that he could get money was to start accusing other people of killing his victims and threatening wealthy people to expose them as killers if they didn't pay him so it's not really brilliant because that's all going to tie back to you eventually exactly that's such a fast way to get caught yeah he's not that smart clearly not the first letter he sent was to William Frederick Smith, who was an MP, a member of parliament. And in the letter, Cream claimed to have evidence that William had killed Ellen Donworth. And he said, if you hire me to be your legal advisor, I'll make sure all this is kept quiet and it won't ever get out. Like, you're welcome. Pay me a lot of money. Um, but Smith immediately told the police. And the police were like, okay, make a meeting with him and we'll be there and we'll catch him. Yeah. But Cream never showed up to this meeting because he must have suspected that would happen. So that whole plan went dead. But he sent a second letter to Horace Smith, who was an investigator, um, telling him that Frederick Smith was surely the murderer and that the police were not doing their jobs by not looking into him. And he wrote a fake letter that was supposedly from Ellen saying she thought Frederick Smith was going to poison her. And the police just ignored that letter. They were like, this is stupid. This is just some prank. And they filed it away. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, the next letter, he tried to do the same thing with a cardiologist and neurologist, uh, William Broadbent. Um, this time he accused this William of killing Matilda Clover and again was like, hey, I'll help you out and keep this quiet um, and help you out with legal things if you pay me. Um, and again, Scotland Yard set up a trap for him, but he didn't show up again. So... The fourth letter he sent was to Countess Mabel. Um, She was going through a divorce and her letter said, I will make sure of your divorce going through because I have evidence that your husband killed Matilda Clover. So now he's like, I'll help you out if you help me out. Like your husband is a murderer and you'll definitely get a divorce if you help convict him. And she was like, this is ridiculous. And she sent the letter to the police. And again, they had like no interest in it and they just ignored it. So 
he what said a weird dude like yeah he's trying so hard to get caught and people are just like nah literally if people had taken it seriously he would have been caught right from that because those letters directly tied him to two murders that happened in two different parts of the city right and, and they're just like not even actively searching for him they're like well i mean if he comes to this meeting then that's fine yeah <laughs> and totally so all of that two traps were set for him from two of the letters which nothing happened from that because he didn't go and two of the letters were just completely ignored so he made no money and all of that was in an attempt to like blackmail people and get money and nothing came of it but was it really because he wouldn't even show up to these meetings yeah like it's just what did he expect to happen like it's like he he set up the meeting but then chickened out and was like oh what if it's a trap which it was so like when were you gonna get your money well do you think that he was kind of watching from afar like wherever it was do you think he was he might have been seeing if these people would show up or not or maybe he was staking them out and seeing if they would go to the police and talk to the police yeah and then he sees that they go talk to the police and he's like okay well that's over with then yeah I bet he was just hoping they would just send him money in the mail or something and, like, not do any. Like, if they didn't send him money, he was just going to drop it, But which he did. But that is such a, I mean, it's a terrible strategy because it tied, like I said, it reveals details in the letters that he sent, details about the poisonings that were not out to the public. So right. this guy makes no sense to me. No, I really I, there's like no thought process to anything he's doing. He's supposedly a doctor, but extremely stupid, but smart smart enough to not actually show his face. But also, like he's putting so much energy into trying to get all this money, and it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like he could probably be making a lot more money doing something else. Maybe being a doctor. Well, I yeah, guess maybe like being an doctor. actual doctor. Right. Oh my god. It's just, Uh, it's so stupid. It just doesn't make sense. Like, he's, like, working so hard to make no money. Yep. Yep. Um, So that November, Dr. Cream met Laura Sabatini, who was in London, learning to be a dressmaker. And he was courting her. And a few weeks into their courtship, they were engaged. And he promised to be as faithful, loyal, constant, and true to you as God ever made a man. But okay. Yeah. And Laura's like, wow, what a a guy. I'm marrying a doctor. This is great. What a guy. Yeah. So, but really, he was broke. And it had taken him only two months for his money to run out that his family had given him when he moved there. Um. And his brother Daniel wanted him to come back to Quebec City in Canada and stay with him and be like, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to send you over to London and we should rethink this. Right. Like, maybe it wasn't a good idea to send you somewhere where you're completely by yourself. Yeah. Just alone with your No one to check up on you. And yeah. So Cream told his fiance, Laura, he had to return to Canada to settle some matters with his father's estate. Um. And on the boat back over to Canada, again, he did not make a good impression. And he was bothering the other guests who 
about talking nonstop about how many women he's slept with and like just being like disgusting. <laughs> no one wanted to hear it. Um, Big. Yeah. So he arrived back in Quebec City January 20th of 1892. Um, but his brother's wife did not want Thomas to live with them. So he checked into the Blanchard Hotel instead. Um, and he invited a salesman, John McCulloch, to his room and showed him some pills. And he said, oh, these pills are poison I give to women when I want them out of the way. So, and that man was like, oh, that's a very odd thing to say. I'm going to store that away in my brain to tell some people about later. Yeah, right. Um, Literally openly admitting to murder to any random person. Like, he just does not care. Has no brain cell. Just because you're in a different country doesn't mean that what you're stating is not illegal yeah (laughs) so he stayed at this hotel for two months and while he was there he met uh martin kingman who was a salesman for a drug manufacturer and he ordered a ton of narcotics and like poisons from him including strychnine morphine and opium so now he has a ton of drugs at his disposal because he's a doctor. He can order these things. Um, so Matilda Nadal, who was a maid at the hotel, met with him and he told her that, oh, y- you need medication and offered her some pills. Um, and she took one of the pills and felt burning in her stomach and purple blotches like broke out on her face and her hands started clenching uncontrollably. Um, Mm -hmm. but she drank some milk and said it helped soothe her stomach and she did not take the other pill and she lived, but that was another very probably attempted murder. You know, if she had taken the other one, she probably would have died. Um, Wow. By late March, Cream wanted to return to London he didn't want to live in Canada anymore. He's like, I'm kind of bored of this city. Everything for me is back in London. So he was going to leave again. Um, but before he left, he left a note at the hotel. And he even made 500 copies of this note that said, Ladies and gentlemen, I hereby notify you that the person who poisoned Ellen Donworth on the 13th last October is today in the employ of the Metropole Hotel and your lives are in danger as long as you remain in this hotel. <laughs> Signed, W.H. Murray. Wow. So I just I just don't understand these letters that he loves sending all the time. It, it just, just makes no sense. Makes no sense. He just, I don't know, is stupid. So he comes back to London in April 1892. And... Police Constable George Comley was patrolling the streets when he saw a man with gold-rimmed glasses, Dr. Cream, in the early morning. And another constable, William Eversfield, came out of a building carrying a young woman whose name was Emma Shravel. And he said, there's another girl inside that needs help. So 
the officer went in and saw Alice Marsh lying face down in the hallway. And the two officers tried to get them to the hospital in time, but Alice died on the way there. Um, Emma's stomach was pumped and she told the police that she and Alice had spent an evening with a man they called Fred and he had given them three pills each to take. And three hours later, Emma died as well. (gasps) She could not be saved, even though they pumped her stomach. Uh Oh, and this is really funny. Their deaths were ruled as accidental poisoning from eating tinned salmon. What? Um, so when the autopsy was done, they found salmon in their stomachs and they just kind of assumed, oh, it must have been bad salmon and they got like really bad food poisoning from it. And um, that is so bizarre. Yeah, it's really random. Like, I, I don't think and apparently like whatever the tin salmon poisoning was like a common cause of death at the time because there wasn't really like proper refrigeration and stuff for it but it was a really really violent death and I don't think it would have been that bad from like Mm -hmm. that I don't know from the salmon so another doctor was kind of unsure if it was really the salmon that killed them so he did some more tests on their stomachs and discovered The salmon found in their stomach was not made in London. It was made in the U.S. So the killer must have brought um, the salmon with them. You know, it wasn't something they could have purchased. So it wasn't really helpful in finding out, you know, actual poison in their stomach. But Mm -hmm. it was kind of helpful in trying to find the killer. Um. Alice was 21 and Emma was 18. They were friends who grew up in the seaside town of Brighton and they moved to London together only a month earlier and had told all their friends and family that they had found work in a factory, but they actually were prostitutes, but they didn't want to tell their family that they were so strapped for money that they had to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just really unfortunate. Like they had just thought it would be really fun. They had just moved to London. They didn't grow up like in bad families or anything, you know, Mm -hmm. just that's how life went. And unfortunately now they're both dead. And so so their stomachs were tested again and their livers. And this time another doctor, Dr. Thomas Stevenson decided The salmon did not play a part in their deaths, and he found strychnine in their stomachs. So, finally. Yeah. Something actually helpful. (laughs) Um, The poisonings, or I'm sorry, poisoning crimes in this time brought a new element to crime cases, which were forensics and the introduction of the expert witness in a trial. Oh, so before this time, an expert witness is like a doctor, a scientist, you know, who knows what they're talking about coming in and explaining to a jury, Mm -hmm. things like that, explaining forensics. So it was really um, forensics were just starting to become a thing. So a lot of people were very 
it's very weird with this case. A lot of people were like, you doctors are crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. And then there was this other half of people who were saying the doctors were actually being really helpful in these cases of finding a killer. So people were really, really untrustworthy of science still at this time. So it was kind of a split jury a lot of the times because some of the jurors just don't believe in these newfangled science stuff. And some of them did. So even though obviously we, we know now it's super, super helpful and right necessary, but they didn't trust it at the time. So everyone was like, I don't know if it's really true what you're saying to the doctors about the poison. Crazy to me. Yeah. That it's just like, no, we found it literally in their stomach. Like that's, that's evidence. I mean, you can't be, can't be more evidence than that. They're like, mm, no, sounds too sciencey to me. Once it's in my body, it's gone. Exactly. It goes into a black yeah. hole. It's done. It does. You are fibbing. No effect. Like, it, yeah. it makes no sense. Like, is it like, what do people think? Like, yeah, actually, once it enters my body, it is instantly feces there, and it can't be. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's no other way. I don't know. It was just like, I don't know. Like the doctors can't be trusted because it was so new that they didn't have enough expertise and stuff like that. But you got to learn sometime. Right. You know, um, the funny thing or not really funny thing, but so I actually looked it up. Um, Strychnine. Oh, yes. It was kind of used as a medicine, but it really was barely used. Um, it said that it was an analeptic, an- which means that it would stop seizures and as an antidote to barbiturates and opioid poisoning or uh, overdoses. But it was also it also could be used as a cardiac, respiratory, or digestive stimulant. So I think that like like it kind of says it's a stimulant um Mm -hmm. it increases the body and when you have way too much weight yeah but the thing is it's listed mostly as a uh, toxin and a poison Uh, especially now and it says um that it usually results in muscular convulsions and eventually death through asphyxia so basically you it like you stop breathing it affects your respiratory system that's rough so that's what we're describing is the so it says it's interesting because it says morphine and the strychnine but it honestly to me sounds like the strychnine is the main um culprit here morphine would just really slow down respiratory rate and kind of make you basically just like go straight to sleep so the morphine would actually be more helpful to the person that's taking this medication. I feel like mm-hmm. because it would kind, it would like help prevent them from having some sort of response. I would feel like, and this is just like me thinking about it. So it's like instead of it, like the strychnine would still be poisoning you, but then the morphine would help kind of cover up the convulsions and all that, and just kind of make you just go to sleep. Yeah, and the strychnine and the morphine together would would slowly make your respiratory system fail and then you just stop breathing damn That's- i wonder if he gave the morphine as like time for him to like flee the crime scene or whatever 
like hoping yeah. it would slow it down or something. Well, I was looking. Yeah. I mean, strashine can be as effect can begin um, seizures within 15 minutes of exposure. Yikes. And Which is what we see a lot in these cases. Mm-hmm. And then 30 to 60 minutes before death. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. According to the CDC website. So. Yeah. I've never even heard of this drug before. Today. I hadn't either. And no. it, apparently it was initially created as a uh, rodent aside. So basically to kill rats, rat poison. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. That's not something you want in your body for sure. I know. Well, actually, interesting fact. There is a blood thinner warfarin, also known as Coumadin. A lot of people are on it. Probably a lot of people's grandmas and grandpas are on it. Um, it was, it's a blood thinner mm-hmm. and it was actually initially used as a rat poison. And they were like, well, these rats are dying because they're bleeding out. So it's thinning their blood. So maybe we can use this for people to thin their blood with, when their blood is clotting too much. Oh and exactly that. So that's a really cool thing about our medication warfarin slash Coumadin that we use still today was wow. actually originally a rat poison that's crazy i know and a lot of people that. take it it's very wow. common well, fun fact if it works <laughs> yeah right but i have never heard of stretch nine yeah and, and honestly doing the research it basically just lists that as a poison mm-hmm. wow so basically not a medicine at all especially yeah today. right it doesn't sound like a very effective medication. It sounds very dangerous. Mm, yeah, for sure. Playing with fire. So in May in London, 1892, PC police constable George Comley was patrolling the crowd at Canterbury Music Hall when he spotted a fancy man wearing glasses who was watching the crowd. And he realized, oh, I've seen this guy before coming out of Emma and Alice's flat. So he teamed up with another uh, police constable, Alfred Ward, to shadow him. And they started following Dr. Cream. And he took a woman into his apartment. And after they saw him leave, uh, they went in to check on the woman. And she said that Dr. Cream had told her he was a doctor from America and um, she was okay. He hadn't given her anything and they advised her not to meet him again. They said, mm-hmm. we don't know for sure, but we think he might be, you know, someone very dangerous. So they warned her against meeting up with him again because he usually met up with them like a few times before killing them, oh. which is also super weird um yeah that actually makes more sense to me though <laughs> to be honest because he met up with them but then didn't want them to like really know who he is or like he was kind of done with them so then he would just i mean in quotes like dispose of them yeah yeah in his own sick brain yeah so um five nights later he on may 17th the officers were continuing to watch him for days and he met they saw cream meet violet 
Beverly at her home. And again, when they left, when he left, um, they checked on Violet and she told them that Cream had showed her a leather case filled with vials of brightly colored pills. And he had filled a glass and mixed it and called it an American drink um, and offered it to her. But she had said, oh, that looks weird. I don't want it. And she declined it. So and she had made another appointment with him. And the officers this time, well, obviously they warned her and they were like, don't take anything he gives you. But would you be willing to meet with him again and give us any information if he says anything else? And she agreed. So they were now following him and like setting him up. And Violet agreed to like give them an end with some information. Um, it's about and it's time. also like it's a strange thing because like whenever he meets these women, like if they say no to taking it, he doesn't like push it. He's like, okay, whatever. We'll meet again another we'll meet day. Again then. Yeah. And True. It's it's it's. I don't know. Like if they take it cool but if they don't cool that's kind of like his attitude but most of the time they're unsuspecting and they just take it right maybe he leaves it up to them maybe he's kind of like you know what like if these women are stupid enough to take this random pill then it's their own fault right that's kind of how it seems in his in his mind it's like it's well i well it's not me they decided to take the pill yeah i didn't force it down their throat it was their decision right that way, and maybe that way it's easier to say it's a suicide because they took it. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, well, I mean, that was your choice. I didn't make you do that. Right. That's that's messed up, though. Yeah. That's um, crazy. Thing is, with that, you say that he opens up this, this briefcase full of vials of colorful pills. Mm-hmm. That very, that reminds me of, like, what? movie is there is it just just like a character that we commonly see someone like wearing a trench coat and opening it up and it being like a bunch of different yes i don't want a picture in all those shady movies oh my god yeah right they're like like, okay what do we got here and open up this trench coat and just have all these different vials of pills hanging from it why is the first thing i think of (laughs) in hercules when he the guy like opens his um opens his cloak and he has a bunch of like the sundials in his cloak. Yes. <laughs> like that's yes. exactly how it is. Yes. It's, I guess that is a common shady character that we see a lot. And then yeah. and this guy kind of fits the bill. I mean, he dresses kind of fancy. He's got a lazy wonky eye. Like <laughs> yeah. where he just kind of looked, he's got crazy eyes and dresses fancy. And you said has a cane at one point, didn't you say? Um, a cape. He wears oh, a cape. A cape? Oh, my yeah. gosh. He is the character. They literally. And a top hat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They literally based that character off of this guy. Literally. They must. Maybe. They must have. <laughs> Dr. Cream. Dr. Cream. Oh, gosh. So, police also found um, the notes to Violet were addressed as Dr. Neil. But they hadn't realized yet. They haven't really put it together that his name is Dr. Neil Cream. So they're looking for, they they have their eyes on the right guy, but they don't know his real name or anything yet. Okay. So unfortunately, one of the women that Alfred Ward, the detective, was speaking to tipped Cream off 
that they were following him and looking around for him. Um, Stupid. Which, yeah, stupid. And then also an American man named John Haynes made a complaint to the police that they were uh, harassing his friend, Dr. Neal. So it turns out Haynes was a private detective for the British government and he had realized that Cream was being watched. So he went to the police to kind of figure out what was going on. And the story that Cream had told this guy was that a fellow like lodger at the hotel or the place he was staying, Walter Harper, was a medical student at St. Thomas Hospital. And Harper had met Alice and Emma in Brighton and gotten one of their friends pregnant. He then performed an abortion and the woman died. So Alice and Emma were blackmailing this Harper and told, um, and they supposedly told Dr. Cream all of this, that they were doing this because they needed to buy the stretching from him to be rid of them. And Dr. Cream was like, I refused to sell them any drugs. And I sent a note to Emma. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay, I said this wrong. So Alice and Emma were supposedly blackmailing Harper. And Harper came to Cream saying he wanted to buy the Stretch Nine to get rid of them, like the two girls. Oh, okay, I see. But yeah, that makes more sense. My bad. Um, and he said no. And he sent a note to Emma warning her that this Walter Harper was going to kill her. Um, And he also claimed that Walter Harper killed Matilda, Ellen Donworth, and Louisa Harvey. So he did not. Louisa Harvey was the girl who pretended to take the pills and threw them away. So now he's accusing someone of killing her and she's not dead. He literally just assumed she was dead. Yeah. All this time he thinks she's dead right now because he assumed she took the pills. Oh my gosh. Oh, not, not a genius, not a smart guy. Um, and and even if you think you're going to, all of these letters, every single one of these murders, somehow you are connected to all of them, even though you're trying to say you're not, but how how do you think the police are going to look at that like how do you think they're not going to come to that conclusion like why is your name with all these women in different parts of the city right and most of them are dead idiot so um you say that his pi friend went to the police and and explained all this to them yes yeah that this is the story he told the pi that must be some crappy PI for being like, hey, stop bothering my friend. This is what really happened. Yeah. Like, maybe you should check your sources, sir. Yeah, maybe you should actually not. Like uh, if you would have done any sort of private investigating in the slightest, literally all you had to do was blink and you'd see, oh, actually, no, he's lying to me. I mean, literally, I don't trust that private investigator with anything. Mm. What do criminals do? Uh, lie. <laughs> yeah, like that's come on, guy. Yeah, that's so dumb to me. <laughs> yeah, that I is. Really not picking my friend. Okay, he didn't do anything. Oh, that's the type picture I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
is dumb. Uh, <clears throat> so, on top of this, Dr. Cream also sent a letter to the police explaining the same story and that he had proof, but he signed it. He signed the letter as W.H. Murray. So, the suspicion shifted to this Walter Harper, and no one even questioned how Cream had known about Matilda Clover dying when the police were only just now looking at her death as a homicide. So they were just like, ha ha ha, okay. Don't know why Matilda's name okay. is in there when that's not public, but okay. Right. This PI uh-huh. knows this guy's got to be legit. Yeah, he's got to be. He works for us, you know, whatever. So the investigation for Harper fell apart pretty quickly, though, as it would since it's not true. Um, so they started looking back at the letters and comparing handwriting of all of these letters that have been sent. Um, and looking at them, the attention shifted back to Dr. Cream, but of course he wasn't signing any of the letters as Dr. Cream. Um, and the police ended up recruiting John Haynes to work as an informant for them. So now this guy, he's like, oh yeah, I messed up. You're right. He is a killer. I'll snitch on him for you. So he's like, I knew all along. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. I knew it. (laughs) No, (laughs) Uh, this is okay. Yeah. It was close. (laughs) It was this close to figuring it out too. (laughs) Oh, whatever. So, Sergeant Patrick McIntyre was introduced to Dr. Cream in May under the guise of, like, I'm the officer assigned to hear your complaints about the police Um, because he wanted to complain that he was being, like, harassed, you know? So, Dr. Cream brought his samples case of all his drugs with him to prove he was a drug manufacturer's agent. And he was like, the only reason you might be interested in me were my indecent portraits, which were like the pornographic images. And he's like, I assure you, I destroyed them. So you don't have to worry about anything from me. I'm legit, clearly. So Cream repeated the story that he had told before about this Walter Harper. Um, And McIntyre was like, hey, can I have a sample of your handwriting, by the way? And Cream was like, oh, yeah, sure. And like wrote a, little, wrote a little letter for him um, and launched a formal complaint of police harassment, uh, which the police were kind of like they were pretending to treat seriously, but really they were just using it to like keep watching him and stuff like that. Um, and the police were under a lot of pressure to solve these because this was right around the time. Um, or about, let's see, 88, and this is 92, like five years ago, were like the Jack the Ripper killings, which famously was unsolved. So they were like, oh. we can't have another Ripper situation of unsolved murders. So the police were under a lot of pressure. Um, so they were trying to hone in on him pretty quickly at this point. Mm-hmm. So Robert Anderson, who was... Um, the head, the police commissioner at the time, assigned Inspector John Tunbridge 
to the poisonings case and told him to pretend to be Cream's officer for the complaints. Um, Tunbridge is known as like a genius detective of his time, like Sherlock Holmes level. Um, and Tunbridge concluded after looking at all the evidence and reading the letters that this Dr. Neal either must be mad or the murderer himself if he's going to accuse anyone else of these crimes like this and just blatantly put it out there. There you go. You should have come to that conclusion a long time ago, but they're getting there. It's kind of like... Um, So Tunbridge went to see Cream on May 29th asking more about his complaints and said that Cream was like really nervous and like trembling. Um, but he gave up some of his samples and showed off his stretch nine samples. And after that meeting, Tunbridge was like, yeah, he's my number one suspect at this point. There's got to be nobody else. It's got to be mm-hmm. him. But Tunbridge took a train from London to North Devon to find this Dr. Harper just to make sure like Right. everything yeah, checked out check everything yeah um so the harpers had been getting letters blackmail letters and instantly the detective recognized the handwriting as dr oh, neil's handwriting now also all of these letters he found out were written on fairfield superfine stationery which is a brand that was only made and sold in the united states so who how many people are likely to have that in the city of London, one person probably. So that that was clever. Yeah. So that was the evidence they needed to charge him with extortion at this time. So really that's what they're going to get him on um, for now is like a blackmailing charge. So cream was also planning on leaving London on June 4th. So they needed to make an arrest immediately before he fled and um tunbridge arrested dr cream on june 3rd and he was arraigned on a blackmailing charge and bail was denied so 307 days after he walked out of illinois state penitentiary cream was back behind bars it was only that long yeah Wow, he got busy. Not even a whole year. Wow. So Tunbridge then requested for somebody to go to the United States and Canada to find more information about these charges and what happened in those countries. So in June of 1892, Inspector Frederick Smith arrived in New York City to find the answers of how Cream had landed in prison in Illinois ten, a year earlier, or 10 years earlier. And that's where I'm going to end it for part one, and we'll find Ugh. that out in part two. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have to so, wait. I'm so curious. Yes. So. I wonder what he did. I'm going to, okay, I'm going to make my guess now. Okay. What got him in jail in the first place? He was only there for nine years, so it couldn't have been like, a lot a lot but maybe they made more connections and they couldn't they couldn't pin it on him completely not enough evidence mm-hmm. 
you know he seems to really go he seems like a really big creep ball and i honestly i don't think it's all from jail i think he's a little unhinged so i'm going to assume that he's creepy towards prostitutes still in in um america that's my guess it's still prostitutes okay he's a sleaze pig ball sleazy pig creepy ball (laughs) nasty person (laughs) pig ball nasty fancy man nasty face lazy eye with a weird cape (laughs) no i literally i have like a perfect image of him and i'm positive that this is how he looked do you want to see a picture yes okay wait let me go get my i have a book and he's on the cover of the book yes i need to see a picture of this man because the way that i'm picturing him so obviously the top hat i want to put a monocle on him but i know that that's not true um obviously the lazy eye he's got like a crooked nose he's, a, he's kind of short just like a creepy little okay hold on let's see position the camera can you see it <laughs> yeah nice. i did not think he would have a mustache he does have a mustache oh my gosh i would not have put a mustache on that guy and he's actually thinner than i thought Oh, you think he'd be chubby? Yeah, I, I thought like stocky. Stocky <laughs> dude. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and sweaty. Yeah. And balding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Can you actually, see his cross eyes in the yes, wait. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I hate to. I mean, it's only okay to make fun of him because he's a he's a horrible person. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does definitely <laughs> look a little little crazy-eyed. A little sus, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I did not picture the mustache, but otherwise actually I can I can see it. I yeah. walk around the cape. A fancy man. A fancy I just like how that one. That one guy explained him as a described him as a fancy man. Yeah, he's like, and it reminded me of something, Mister Fancy Man. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, that's part one. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear next week. That's very interesting. Doctor Cream is a horrible, horrible, horrible person. Um, mm-hmm. I intend on making another kind of cream pie next week. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah because he's pies. just the type like honestly if i saw him I'd, I'd throw a pie in his face like i just <laughs> yes right yeah like he'd probably he'd probably like the frosting on his face i'd, I'd throw a poop pie at him a poop pie <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen the help yes she like bakes the shit into the pie <laughs> i know <Eat> my shit. <laughs> that is so that's honestly the funniest thing oh, that was the that's best too good part of the movie uh it is it is otherwise it's a very sad movie but uh yeah <laughs> but yes no she, that's that's a hilarious part that was so good uh, anyway yeah on that on that note tune in next week to listen to us again to hear the finished story of dr cream i'm casey i'm emily and you just heard a sprinkle of sugar a dash of murder <laughs>